Hey, everybody. Uh, so I'm recording this lecture also on my end, the audio, and putting up on my podcast next week. So uh, feel free to uh, sign up for my podcast, and then you'll, you can see all my lectures, and then you'll get it, it'll be posted next week um, uh, on audio. So, and I want this to be very informal, okay? I want to be back and forth questions. I'll begin with a scenario, uh, and then we can kind of let it go from there. Now, first things first, uh, the only predictable thing about the ICU is that it's unpredictable. Okay. So that is the way of the, of the world in critical care. Uh, everything can be going fine for the entire day. And then at uh, the end of your shift, someone crashes and then you're consumed for the next three hours. Uh, or I'm on my way out and then there's a code blue in the, ho in the house and then that, then that consumes me for the next several hours. That is the way of our field. That is the way of critically ill patients. I think if we expect that, uh, as sometimes it can be frustrating. You've been behaving all day. Your patients have been behaving all day. And all of a sudden, they uh, decide not to behave. And then that makes your day longer. It's very frustrating. I don't discount that. At the same time, that's the way of the world. That's the way critically ill patients are. Um, one of my least favorite things I uh, hate is uh, rapid AFib. And every time it just happens to be a patient that we extubate them, we're all happy, and then they go into rapid AFib. And then I'm like, oh my God, I'm dealing with rapid AFib. Or whatever the case may be. So just know that these people are very sick. These patients are very sick. And they are going to have things that come up out of the blue. I, I don't understand why, uh, it, it, but it justifies the fact that they are critically ill. And that's, what, and that's what happens. They get sick, and they get sick unpredictably. And that's the only predictable thing of the ICU. So that's the first thing. Um, the, the second thing is, goes back to my top five rules of the ICU that I think we've talked about, is the not to panic, okay? Things happen quickly in the ICU. They happen, like we said, unpredictably in the ICU. And they can deteriorate quite quickly in front of your eyes. And the number one thing you can do for your patients is to not panic. It doesn't matter. Sets are going down. The blood pressure is going down. The heart rate's going up. They can't breathe. But you just the key is not to panic. When you panic, you freeze in fear. You don't think straight. You don't, and then you're going to harm your patient. So I remember early, you know, we we had spoken together about, you know, I don't have time for people's feelings in the ICU. Uh, when there's a, a crashing patient and the, 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 the person, the, the resident that I want to lead it freezes in fear, I have to act. So I move the resident aside, I take care of the issue. There's not going to be one of us at night. So there's no one to push you aside. Okay, sometimes the ICU nurses will, and I know that that's led to some tension. The reason they do that is the reason I would do that as well, because I don't have time for someone to freeze when I have a set that's going from 90 to 80 to 70 to 50, then the heart rate goes to 50, and then it, before you know it, they're, they're arresting. That's how it happens sometimes. So you can do great by yourself and the patient by not panicking. Just don't panic, whatever it is. Inside, panic is normal. I can't tell you how many times I've had situations where I'm literally trying to intubate someone. I can't see the airway. It's all blood. The sats are going down. The heart rate's going down, and inside, I'm freaking out. On the outside, I'm calm. To the point where I look disinterested. I'm not disinterested. I'm trying to remain calm so that I don't harm the patient. 
by freezing in fear. And if you freeze in fear, you can't do anything. So don't panic, don't panic, don't panic, don't panic, don't panic. It's my top five rules of the ICU. And that applies at night just as much as during, as during the day. So um, I'm going to begin with a, with a very common scenario. At night in the ICU, hypotension. Okay? Suddenly, they were fine all day. The blood pressure was good. And all of a sudden, they become hypotensive. All right? So what are, what are kind of, what, what's one thing you can look at right away that can give you a little bit of a sense of the cause of hypotension? Because remember, how many types of shock are there? How many types? How many? Four. There are four types of shock, right? Then they are, what's number one? What's one of them? Distributive shock is one of them. Distributive septic is, is hemorrhagic or hypovolemic is the second, right? Septic is, dis, is distributive. Anaphylactic is distributive. Uh, neurogenic is, is distributive, okay? So we have distributive, hypovolemic. We have obstructive shock, number three, fourth, and cardiogenic. Those are, those are the four, okay? Now, when you look at the hemodynamic profiles of all, all four of them, three of them have a very characteristic hemodynamic uh, reading when you look at the blood pressure. Can, can anyone tell me? What's characteristic of three of the four? Say again? Tachycardia, sometimes, sometimes not. Just by walking into the room and looking at the blood pressure, you can kind of tell maybe what's happening. Thinking about the hemodynamic profiles. Close. It's the systolic blood pressure. It's the, what, say again? The pulse pressure. Exactly, the pulse pressure. Now, in... Cardiogenic shock, in obstructive shock, and in hypovolemic shock, you have elevated systemic vascular resistance, right? The uh, hemodynamic correlate of systemic vascular resistance is the, which one? You only have 50% chance of getting it right. The, so which blood pressure number correlates to the SVR? The, the diastolic, not the systolic, it's the diastolic. Think about it, right? All of the splanchnic circulation, all of the capillaries, all of, they're clamped down, so that raises the diastolic blood pressure, okay? Why it's trying, that's why they're cold and clammy and pale, right? There's all of the capillary beds are clamped down to divert blood from the periphery and the kidneys, etc., to preserve blood flow to the heart and the brain, okay? The body will sacrifice all other organ systems to preserve the heart and the brain. That's why you get renal failure. That's why you get bowel ischemia. That's why you get cold and clammy extremities because all of those capillary beds are being restricted by the, you know, all the endogenous vasop you know, all those things that are trying to prevent, to trying to counteract the decrease in oxygen delivery, right? So, when you so that that so that relatively elevates the diastolic blood pressure. So when you walk into the room before not knowing anything else, you look at the blood pressure and 65 over 58. That tells you that it's not sepsis. More than likely, it's not sepsis, right? Before you put vasopressors on, because I can make the blood pressure normal by starting vasopressors, right? But 
looking at the number will kind of give you an idea of what's happening. Okay, so if it's 65 over 58, it's probably not septic shock. Either they're bleeding, or they suffered a PE, or they're just dry. Maybe you over we 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 overdiuresed them throughout the day, and now they're hypotensive because now they're intravascular volume depleted, right? Or maybe now they're suffering a GI bleed, and you can't find it. Now tachycardia is a good point. One of the first signs that one of the first hemodynamic changes in volume depletion is tachycardia because we're trying to maintain constant oxygen delivery, okay? So the first thing that the body does to maintain oxygen delivery is raise the heart rate to raise the cardiac output, okay? Eventually, it's not going to keep up, and then you're going to get hypotensive. But when you have hemorrhagic shock, hypotension, you're in, like, I think it's like stage three. You're already way beyond what's what's been what's been happening okay so when you walk in and you look at the blood pressure if you have a narrow pulse pressure that tells you that it's not distributive shock it's not it's not sepsis okay it's something else then you can start to start to troubleshoot so what so you have your 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 hypotensive what would you do next to try to figure out why we'll say they're not intubated and then they're intubated so now this is a non-intubated patient, spontaneously breathing. They're hypotensive. The nurse hypotensive. The nurse calls you in and says blood pressure is low. Doc, and they just and they just look at you. So we know. We, well, no, well, you don't know, right? You're, they're just they're just hypotensive. Yeah, yeah, they're just hypotensive. Yeah, very good. You do a straight leg raise. Absolutely, that is an in, in, uh, an internal bolus, right? That's a two hundred. That's the only two hundred fifty cc bolus I will allow you to do. Okay, okay. That's the only cup of coffee I will allow you to give, give the patient. But if you're going to give a, a patient a crystalloid bolus of fifty cc's, that's a cup of coffee that they're sipping over an hour. That's unacceptable. Okay, but a straight leg raise is real quick, very fast assessment, especially if they have an arterial line. If you see the blood pressure go up, then that tells you that they're volume responsive. So something's going on where they're volume responsive. So then feel free to then to intervene and give them a bolus more than a cup of coffee. Okay? 250 cc's is a, is a cup of coffee. No one does that to, the, to themselves. So why do it to your critically ill patient? All right? I give a liter at a time of crystalloid. Sometimes I'll do 500 uh, mLs of albumin. There is no evidence that albumin works better than crystalloid. There's none. It's um, personal preference and art. And because I feel like it, I can't give you any kind of evidence that it, that it, that, that it means uh, that there's, that there's, uh, it's better than lactated ringers. Okay? Try, no, try to avoid too much saline because there's nothing normal about normal saline. Okay? The 150 milli, 154 milli equivalents of chloride is very abnormal. It's very unnatural. It's the only... It's the only thing that this, well, there's two things that the surgeons were right about. Number one was LR is better than saline. And two, when people bleed, you should give them whole blood. They were also right about that. Everything else, the surgeons were wrong. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But try to, uh, do, try to do a balanced crystalloid. You can do a colloid. Just know there's no evidence to support that a colloid is better than crystalloid. Okay? So 
if they if they're volume responsive, by by all means, intervene and give them um, a crystalloid bolus. Now, what else can we do on a non-intubated patient to kind of assess what's why are they hypotensive all of a sudden? Very good. You do a, a point of care ultrasound for a couple of reasons to see now do they have a humongous pleural effusion? Do they have a humongous pericardial effusion? Do they have, it just look like it's like, like they have tamponade, especially someone who had a pacemaker? Someone had a pacemaker that day, and now at, it's three in the morning and they're hypotensive, 65 over 58. What do you think? What, what are we thinking about? Yeah, bleeding in the pericardium, 100%. Pericardial tamponade, and they could be bleeding in the pericardium. Okay, so that's, that, that's also, that's very important. So taking a quick look at the LV and RV, either the, the, the parasternal long axis, or if you can do an apical four-chamber, four just take a look and see what's, what's happening. And if the LV is hyperdynamic, right, and it's completely collapsing, that further tells you that there's volume depletion and you want to resuscitate, okay? Then you would again, if they're maybe maybe they have they're on maybe they have a, an abdominal hematoma. Maybe if they had a cardiac cath, they had a retroperitoneal bleed. You could bleed units and units and units and units and units of blood in the retroperitoneal space without even knowing it. With the leg completely soft, and you can have liters of blood in the retroperitoneal space with a normal leg. So. Think about the history of the patient, right? And what happened? What happened today? Did they have a pacemaker? Did they just came from cardiac cath? Are they on warfarin or apixaban or rivaroxaban? Do they have now an, a, a big abdominal hematoma, right? So then you would get, you'd get a CBC. You'd see what the hemoglobin is, right? Those sort of things. But all that starts with the pulse pressure. Because if now, if you walk into the room and they are 65 over 25, that's a whole different story. And I'm assuming the blood pressure cuff is correct and it's accurate. And, or if you have an arterial line, you know, I'm assuming that. Right? 65 over 25, that's something else. That's more likely to be distributive shock, right? So then you think of, is that are they becoming septic? Which happens all the time. Are... Uh, does this anaphylaxis? Did do they have cancer and now they've obstructed their spinal cord? Who knows? You know what I'm saying? When you see a wide pulse pressure, that tells you there's something there's something different going on. And then you just, now that's a little bit more difficult to intervene. You, I mean, you can't just give a bolus and get rid of septic shock, right? But you can intervene. You can see if their volume again straight, the straight leg raise. Sometimes people with septic shock are still volume responsive, right? People who, who are sick with flu or, you know, polynephritis, they haven't been eating, they haven't been drinking, they, they, they come in dry. So resuscitate them until they no longer become volume responsive. Let me stop there. Questions? Now, oh, yes. I like, I do a liter at a time. That's me, okay? Some now, even if they have heart failure. Everyone worries about heart failure. First of all, first of all, don't panic, okay? 
Um, everyone's heart failure is like herpes. Once someone says CHF, it stays on the chart forever. And then all I do is go look in the care everywhere, okay? And I see the echo two months ago had an EF of 80%. But everyone's all oh, they have heart failure. I can't give them flu. First of all, trust, but verify. Do they have heart failure? Look in care everywhere or in the search, you know that search field on the left panel? That's the Google search of Epic. Just put echo. And every instance in the chart in Epic where there was an echo written in a note or a lab or whatever will be there. Take a look. See, is the EF 10% or is the EF 60%? But when someone puts CHF on the chart, it stays with them forever. And now, now they're afraid to give fluid to somebody who wants it, okay? <laughs> and because they're worried about overloading them. Even people with an ejection fraction of 10% can get dehydrated, guys. <laughs> and you have to give them fluid. Worst case scenario, they become hypotensive. Uh, they become hypoxic. Okay. Give them oxygen, right? I mean, you know, I'm saying it's, don't panic. It's not the end, even if, God forbid, now this is obviously bad, even if you have to intubate them because they become hypoxic, because they become volume overloaded, okay. But don't sacrifice their kidneys and their bowel and their splanchnic circulation because you're, because you're afraid of giving them some fluid, even if they have CHF. Same thing with renal failure, even if they have renal failure. Worst case, you dialyze them after they're resuscitated. But don't under-resuscitate someone for fear of causing vo volume, volume overload. Don't worry about the volume overload. Assess the patient. Treat the patient. Right? Take a look and verify. Do they have, really, do they have cardio, you know, systolic dysfunction or not? Because a lot of times people just say CHF and it's not there. They may have diastolic dysfunction. Okay, fine. Still, if they are volume de depleted, you need to replete the volume. Period. Okay, with more than a cup of coffee. Yes. How fast do you bolus? As fast as you can get it in. I love I love thirty minutes. My pumps won't won't let me do it faster than that. If you can squeeze the, I've, I have been at the bedsides of patients with hemorrhagic shock and I am literally squeezing the units of blood in my, with my own hands in the, in, the, in the OR. So if you can squeeze, you can put them on, a, if you can put on a pressure bag, do it. Interestingly, an eight, a 16 gauge IV, I don't remember the exact numbers, but you can give 300 mLs per minute, something like that, in a 16 gauge IV. It's actually faster than, than a central one. So, you know, the two 18-gauge IVs in both antecubitals, that is actually really good for volume resuscitation. They are bigger than central lines. So if you can do that, if you can put a large bore IV, 16-gauge, ideally 18-gauge, you can pound fluids and blood very quickly. So as fast as possible. That's a great question. As fast as possible. As fast as your pump will let it. If you have to squeeze with your hands or put on a pressure bag, do it. As long as you have a good IV, you can get fluid in very, very rapidly. That's, that's the ideal. But when you put 250, and I'm going to keep harping on the cup of coffee, over one hour, so you're, you know, you're like, 
That's what you're doing, okay, with the 250cc bowls over an hour. All right? Don't do that. Um, now, someone's intubated and they suddenly become hypotensive. Now, what are we worried about? Or what we have to start thinking about? Auto peep, exactly. Did they drop their lung? Okay? Did they, um, especially if they have a peak, and we'll, this will go into ventilator alarms, but if they start peak, they have a peak pressure alarm. So if now you have a peak pressure alarm and they're hypotensive, right, and they're 65 over 58, you want to think maybe there's, maybe there's barrel trauma going on. And you know what? If you sus highly suspect that there is a tension pneumothorax, just stick a needle in the chest. If you're wrong, okay, you're wrong. If you're right, you save their life immediately. And if you're wrong, we'll put a chest tube in. No, big, no worries, right? But you can at least say, I thought they had a tension pneumothorax. I couldn't wait for the x-ray. They were crashing in front of my eyes. So I had to put a 18-gauge needle right up here, anterior, second rib space, anterior, mid-clavicular line, right there. Right over the second rib, just right down. If you have a big pop, air pop, and the blood pressure goes up immediately, you were right. If not, whatever. You know, I was in a, I was in an LTAC, and the lady, I was trying to intubate this lady. She wouldn't open her mouth for the life of me. She wouldn't open her mouth. I gave my Dazolam after my Dazolam after my Dazolam, nothing. She, she clamped down. I finally gave her propofol. She relaxed enough. I intubate her. And the next thing said, Doc, heart rate went to zero. And now I'm now we're now we're coding her. And I'm like, oh my God, maybe I maybe I caused a pneumothorax. So I stuck a needle into her chest. I got nothing happened. We were it was probably the propofol. We resuscitated her, she came back, now I got chest x-ray and there's a pneumothorax. That I did. Okay. I talked to the attending, I was a fellow at the time, I said, can I just send somebody with a pneumothorax to the, the hospital? Like, you can if you want. I'm like, oh my God. But never mind. Can I just put a chest in? Happens. Right? At the time I thought, oh my God, this patient, I must have dropped their lung. No one's going to fault you for that. You're having someone crash in front of you and, you, and and you thought, and then you document what you did. You document why you did that. I, my clinical judgment, I thought the patient was having a tension pneumothorax, and so I had to intervene because the patient was hypotensive and about to arrest. You're right, great. You're wrong, no one's going to fault you for doing what, what you could at the time. But you got to document. If you don't document, then, 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 then it's up to the lawyer's imagination. Because they will create the story for you. They will construct the story if you don't tell your own story. And believe me, I've been in depositions and they are trying to construct a story about me that is not true. And all I have to defend myself five years later is my documentation. Memory's not going to work. I don't remember patients that I saw two months ago. So there's no way I'm going to remember a case from five years ago. No way. All I have is my documentation. And if there isn't any, that you have just given the lawyer an open book to construct this, write, this, write your story for you. Don't let them do that. You have to tell your own story in your own, in, in your own words. Okay, so yes, so now let's go into, so, so we talked about hypotension. Anything else about hypotension? If you need, if you are resuscitating, 
and you need to start vasopressor simultaneously, absolutely do so. We want to minimize the time that they are hypotensive. The volume resuscitation will take some time. So if they're not responding, by all means, start vasopressor simultaneously. Don't just wait, I, you know, don't just wait for three hours because <laughs> I'm giving them a bolus. No, 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 no. I mean, you can do them at the same time. So minimize the time that they're hypotensive. And if you need to start norepinephrine, whatever, um, do so. Yes? Again, albumin versus crystalloid. I'm not sure there's any strong evidence that one is better than the other. Uh, albumin is more expensive by a, by a long shot compared to a, a, a bag of LR. Um, I use it literally because I just feel like it. Honest to God, there's no there's no you know evidence behind it. Just, you know, I've given a couple liters of crystalloid. Maybe I'll give them some albumin now, right? Um, it's smaller volume, maybe. A little bit bigger bang for the buck, right? Uh, but it's a big, it's a big buck that we're that we're spending, uh, and I can give it faster because it's less, right? It's 500 mLs versus a thousand mLs, so that's why I'll do it. But I can I can't point to the study that says, you know, yes, uh, albumin is better. Um, still, I think that the the point is if you're not gaining headway with the crystalloid or colloid, you should start vasopressor simultaneously. You shouldn't wait now. Vasopressor order. What should be your what should be your first choice? Well, there's pretty good evidence behind it. Nor norepinephrine is your first choice. Peripheral, yep, yep, and and you can do it peripherally. You know, if you have a good IV, you can start norepinephrine peripherally. I think multiple studies have demonstrated the safety of peripheral vasopressors. It's good for the patient because you're starting therapy right away. You don't have to stick their neck for, for, you know, their neck or chest or groin for a line, which takes time. And in, sometimes in the hands of an unskilled uh, physician is worse than peripheral vasopressors, right? Um, and it's been demonstrated to be safe, even in the randomized trials. So definitely don't, you know, now if you're escalating vasopressor doses, I mean, you know, 20, 30, I know now it's, you know, mics per kilo per, per minute, but if you're, you know, going up to 0 0.1, 0 0.15, 0 0.2, then yeah, it might be it's safer to put a central line in. But by all means, start start peripherally. Don't don't wait to wait after put a central line. No, no, definitely start peripherally. So norepinephrine is number one. Typically, number two would be vasopressin. Number three typically is epinephrine, and number four is phenylephrine. I know a lot of surgeons and anesthesiologists and other love to do norepinephrine. Uh, Phenylephrine by himself, that's the last choice. Phenylephrine is not a good standalone drug as first choice. Um, they love to do it because they can just push Neo in the OR, and, and, and that's great. When they come to the ICU, then do what's evidence-based. So um, no, number one, norepinephrine. Number two, vasopressin. Number three, epinephrine. Number four, phenylephrine. In that order, last on, first off. So when the nurses ask you which way to titrate, just do it the opposite way that you that you that you added them. All right. In some in some instances, however, if they're bradycardic and hypotensive, we would use dopamine. 
but dopamine sometimes will then call, call, call say, tacky, tacky, arrhythmia, and I have a different problem. But I will do, if someone's bradycardic and hypotensive, I may start dopamine rather than norepinephrine. Yes? No. I mean, I don't typically use... So renal dose dopamine was disproven when I was a resident applying for fellowship. Okay, that was when the, when the dinosaurs rolled the earth. Is when I was a resident applying for fellowship. And then it was, it was disproven, the renal dose dopamine. Okay? I don't use it for diuresis. What, now, why people will do it for diuresis? Because they're trying to increase perfusion to the kidneys. But any vasopressor can do that. I have never seen it. I've never seen it. What's working is not the dopamine per se, but the perfusion to the kidney. Right? You're increasing blood flow to the kidney, and so now they're, they're, there's more blood flow, and there's more urine output. Um, I will use dopamine in someone who's bradycardic and hypotensive, or just, or just bradycardic. If I know that they have cardiac dis dysfunction, and, it's, and I'm pretty certain that it's cardiogenic shock, I will use, I will use dobutamine. The question was, why, when would you use dobutamine? In someone that I know has cardiac dysfunction that is in shock, that I'm suspecting to have cardiogenic shock, then I will use dobutamine. Then, th th then I will use dobutamine. Yes? So the question is, some people are hesitant to use uh, norepinephrine because of tachycardia. Well, one, here's another thing. They're tachycardic. They'll call you and say, doctor, doctor, it's heart rate's 140. What's the first thing you should do? Assuming they're hemodynamically stable. If they're unstable and they're tachycardic, it depends. Like sometimes you may have to cardiovert them, right? But ideally, you have the time. What do you want to know? An EKG, exactly. I want to know, is this rapid AFib? Is this SVT? Is this MAT? Is this Prasad? Is this VFib? I mean, I mean, VFib, you should know. I hope you should know what VFib looks like. But Torsad looks a lot like VFib, guys. Torsad looks a lot like VFib. So a lot of times, maybe you don't need to, sh you know, people with their pulseless, you can shock them. But sometimes it's just magnesium, right? Magnesium, and you'll get someone out of Torsad. So... If you can get an EKG, that is ideal because now you're seeing is this sinus tachycardia or is this rapid atrial fibrillation? If it's sinus tachycardia, then figure out why they are tachycardic. Are they in pain? Are they agitated? Are they did they just drop a lung? Are they now bleeding and you don't know? Are they what what is it? That's did they, did they throw a PE? All these things can cause sinus tachycardia, right? If it's rapid afib. You name it, anything can cause rapid AFib, right? And especially critically ill patients. And then, or if it's SVT, then maybe we do adenosine. Adenosine never, has never worked for me in rapid AFib, ever. It slows it down for a little bit, and then you just go right back up. It's not going to break it. It will show you the underlying fibrillation, right? But then you'll know, okay. But if the EKG shows rapid AFib, then you know what, then, then we have our own things of what to do with rapid AFib, diltiazem, maybe a little metoprolol, maybe labetalol, you know. All those things to kind of slow, slow down the heart rate. Um, but, but that's a very good question. If you have tachycardia, 
try to find out what kind of tachycardia. And if it's sinus tachycardia, then why are they tachycardic? Again, in the unit, I can make the number be normal. I can, I can get rid of hypotension. I can get rid of tachycardia, but I'm not treating the patient necessarily. I need to understand what is going on to treat the patient. I can make the number get better in, in a matter of moments, but I may not be necessarily helping treat the patient. Okay? Yes? Sometimes leave. Sometimes norepinephrine. So the question was, if you have someone in cardiogenic shock, do you do norepinephrine first, or you do dobutamine first? I think norepinephrine does have some inotropic effects. You can. I don't. I don't think you'd be necessarily wrong to use norepinephrine in someone with cardiogenic shock. Dobutamine. I think the the advantage I like of dobutamine is that it can cause peripheral vasodilation, dilatation, and that's what you want in somebody with systolic heart failure. Right? You want to reduce afterload, correct? Whereas norepinephrine technically can increase afterload. So that's the advantage of dibutamine because you can call. Now, in septic shock, don't use dibutamine. Okay, so the last thing they need is more peripheral vasodilatation, right? In cardiogenic shock, that peripheral vasodilatation may be, a, may be actually an added therapeutic benefit because you're reducing afterload while helping the squeeze. So that's why I think I like dibutamine in those instances. Now, it can cause tachycardia. It can, right? So just know that. Just like dopamine dopamine can cause tachycardia. It can take you from a bradycardic shock to now tachyarrhythmic shock. Just know that that's what dopamine can do. Of course. Do I, the question is, do I see a, a benefit to stress those steroids? I, I do do it. Um, maybe not right away. But as someone who's in shock second, third, fourth day, I may add testosterone. If I know that they're on chronic prednisone, they're a patient with COPD who takes five of prednisone a day, I will do it from the get-go uh, if they come in with septic shock, for example. So, but usually I won't do stress steroids right away. And someone with shock, I'll wait day two, day three. And if they're still needing significant amount of vasopressors, I'll, I will add on you know, 50 milligrams of hydrocortisone every six hours. Ideally, the studies are continuous infusion, but every time I tell them that, Pharmacists start melting and then they go crazy and it's just oh my god the pump and so um, yeah you know ideally it's uh, continuous infusion that's what the studies were anything else about hypotension okay ventilators a lot of things we can, we can talk that could be a whole other lecture quickly if you're having trouble ventilating a patient you can always Disconnect them from the ventilator and bag them. If you you don't know what's going on, you kind of figure out what's, oh, is this, are they bucking the ventilator? Is it a mucus plug? Or, and you're starting to get into trouble and they're starting to, to desaturate. You always have the opportunity to disconnect them from the machine and bag them. Take advantage of that. Don't sit there and watch the patient struggle and now they're desaturating. And you know what? This is not COVID anymore. COVID, they could be 20s and just looking at you and laughing. Okay? Or when we <laughs> someone popped off their ventilator, there were trachs, they coughed their ventilator off. By the time we got all dressed in our PPE, she was sitting in the 20s. Nothing happened. 
that's COVID, okay? Non-COVID, they arrest, all right? When their sats go below 50, 40, 30, they will heart, their heart will stop, all right? So don't just look there, well, is this, um, what's happening? And do I have the peak and the, the inspiratory time while they're, no, no, no. If you ever have a doubt, just disconnect it from the machine. I've, I deal with respiratory there and just start bagging them. And then they'll tell you, are they very hard to bag? That's, that's, that, that will tell you something. If they're very difficult to bag, is it a mucus plug? Did they drop a lung? Okay. Um, what happened? Right. So that if they're very easy to bag, then I don't know, maybe they woke up, they're not as sedated, they're something happened, whatever. So you always have that up that um, tool at your at, at your disposal. Disconnect them from the are they are they auto peeping? You disconnect them and whoosh, air comes out, blood pressure goes up, they start breathing better. Right? When we just intubate somebody and then I say, hey, can you go back to patient? Don't be excited, you know, it's all exciting and you know, and we're like Somebody with uh, COPD and what, and they they take you know they have you know their IDE ratio is one to six, one to eight, and you're like, calm down, don't panic, relax, let them exhale, let them exhale. When you know how someone has COPD, seriously, bag them once and let them exhale. You'll hear the air going out and out and out.